you're going to want to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're only going to be in two passages tonight. Uh, so if you get to John chapter 3, mark it. Plus, under your chair tonight, you, when you came in, there is this note sheet. And we're going to be going pretty fast tonight because as Jose said, he wants me to help us all learn how to read and study the Bible better. So this is for you to keep and stick in your Bible. Uh, if you don't have one of these, you'll probably get lost at some point in, on the night. There is two sides. So start on the side that says step one. We'll get to that in a minute. Does everybody have a Bible that needs one? You ready to go? Okay. Well, let's do it. Well, as Jose said, my name is Steve. I go with Vicky in the front row. We'll be married 30 years this August. How about that? It's like cool. Yeah. And one of the things that Jose didn't say is Vicky's also an Air Force Academy graduate, and that's a whole story we will not go into tonight. How do Air Force Academy graduates get married? But tonight is week three in our series called Essentials. And next week, Jose is going to be back, and he's going to finish up the whole series on essentials. And one of the essentials is how to read and study the Bible. So we're going to do that tonight, and we're going to walk through a passage out of John chapter 3, and we're going to go through this note sheet, and I'm going to help you with that. But first, I want to start with just a, like a real down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolt reality check. I want you to be real honest with yourself and say, do you ever struggle with reading the Bible from time to time? I mean, I do. When I first started reading the Bible, one of my questions to God was, why is it so thick? And it's not only thick, but the pages are thin. So it's actually thicker than it appears. And then, you know, I was, as Jose said, I was a fighter pilot. There's poetry in here. I mean, that's for girly men, right? I mean, I don't know anything about poetry at all, uh, but it's the Word of God. So I know it's important, but I struggled with it. I actually grew up Catholic, and I didn't read the Bible very much at all growing up. And then I got saved my freshman year at the Air Force Academy, which was wonderful. And I started reading the Bible. The challenge was the guy who led me to Christ was a senior and it was right before graduation. So I got saved and he left. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a church community. I kept on going to Catholic mass, but I didn't really, I didn't really know anybody. Uh, and I continued to read my Bible because that's what this guy said to do. But over time, I started reading it less and less and less. Why? Because I didn't understand what I was reading. I didn't really know how to approach it and what to do. What I found after I graduated from the academy, I went to a Bible church like Solid Rock, is that, wow, all the things that Jim talked about last week, the Bible's powerful, it does things, it's alive, it's active, it helps me in my daily life. And I came to find out that all this stuff about love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, all that, if I don't read the Bible, I don't have that. It's that simple. There's other things, big things in life that you have decisions with. Who you're going to marry? Are you going to buy a house or not? Are you going to take on a mortgage or not? Should I take this job or not? Should I go to this place or not? All those big decisions in life, the Bible helps out with because there's so many principles in it. Also, tough times come along. Everybody has tough times occasionally. And when the tough times come, if you've been in the Word, you can handle it better. I've been a privilege to be an elder, uh, an elder at Solid Rock since the beginning. And one of the things I've noticed is people that come with problems and ask us to pray for, you can split them up into two camps, people that are dealing with their problems well and people that aren't dealing with their problems well. And I noticed after about four or five years, because I'm slow, it takes me a while, that this group that was dealing with their problems well was regularly reading the scriptures. And the group that wasn't dealing with the problems well, it was just a total crisis and they're falling apart, they weren't in the Bible. And he's saying, is it that simple? 
I'm here to say yes, it is. So because it's so essential, we're going to talk about that tonight. One last thing before we get started. I want to ask you to do a personal inventory, to ask yourself, where are you personally in your Bible reading? Now, this is not a guilt trip. Please hear me. This is not a guilt trip because that doesn't do anybody any good. But ask yourself honestly, of the last seven days, how many days have you opened this book? Of the last seven days, how many days have you opened this book? Was it one or two, five or six, seven? And again, I'm not asking you that to have you feel guilty, but the statistics are, even in good, solid Bible-believing church like this, only about 10 or 20% of the people read their Bible every day. And we think that if we want to actually be on mission for God in the Sunset Corridor, that if we simply get that changed, if we could have people read their Bible more regularly, more consistently, and understand what they're reading, God, through His Holy Spirit, will do amazing things. I truly, truly believe that. I'm very passionate about that. So is Jose and the rest of the team. So we don't want to just tell you to read your Bibles more. We want to help you do that. And that's what tonight is all about. D.L. Moody said it this way, when I study the Bible, I prepare myself to talk to others. When I read the Bible, God talks to me. And I think we need to do both. We both need to read the Bible and let God speak to us, and we need to study the Bible so we could prepare and grow and mature as Christians and be more Christ-like day after day after day. Sometimes I just sit down and read the Bible. I'm not a morning person, but I am a French press coffee person. So Pete's, yes, we have a, someone in the back agrees. You know, my morning starts out now that I don't have to work downtown at 6 a.m. every morning. My morning starts with a French press coffee, get the coffee going, and sometimes I just read and enjoy and read lots of scriptures. Sometimes I'll stop and actually study because I want, you know, I don't have any idea what I just read. I might want to figure that out. And that's a difference, but tonight we're going to talk about the last one, the study bit. The bit. Now, as Jose said, we're going to do something a little bit different. Normally, when you listen to a message at Solid Rock and other churches, the pastor just gives you the result of the study that they did. Tonight, we're going to study it together, and we're going to put the four steps that are on your card up on the screen, and what we're going to do is step through these four steps. Now, where these come from, I didn't make these up. These are pretty common knowledge. These particular steps come out of a book by a guy named Ray Lubeck, who wrote a book called Read the Bible for a Change. Read the Bible for a Change. I love that title because we're reading the Bible to change ourselves and to love God and to change others. Step one is all about content. And what that is, is observing the content of the passage. Real simple. Step two is, is starting to look at the meaning. What does this passage mean? Uh, step three are the truths or the principles, the timeless truths. And then the final, the, the fourth step is how do we respond to what we've just read? So, Along the way, I'm going to give you 12 tips, and those are interspersed, and those are on your note sheet. So if you don't have your note sheet, you're going to really be, get confused. But there's four big steps and a bunch of tips along the way. The tips come from some of my personal experience, some of the stuff I learned from others, some of the stuff I learned in seminary, and they're there just to help you. Some of them might help you, some of them may not. You can throw out some of the tips, some are not. So let's look at John 3 tonight as our passage. I'm reading in the NIV, the New International Version. And if you don't know, there's, a, there's an updated version, the 2011 version. Many of you have an older NIV. That's a 1984 version. That's a great version. Uh, the 2011 is also a great version, and that's the one I'm reading for. And I'm going to start in verse 10 tonight. In my Bible, verses 10 through 15 are a paragraph. So here's this scenario. You're sitting down, reading your Bible, 
tomorrow morning and you read this passage. So let's read it together. Just follow along with me. You are Israel's teacher. This is chapter 3 of John, verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So let's say tomorrow morning you're reading that passage, and you've been reading through the Gospel of John, and you like it, and you get to that, and you go, you know what? It seems important, because it says, if I believe, I have eternal life, and I kind of want that. But what's this bit about a snake in the wilderness? What's this bit about heaven things and earth things? And I don't get it. So you say, all right, I'm going to pause. And instead of keep plowing through and just reading without understanding, I'm going to pause and figure out what does this mean? So that's where we get to step one in your note sheet. And the first thing you want to do probably is read it again. And when you read it, we're going to make observation and discovery. Now, if we had time tonight, we would actually read this again. If this was a seminary class, you would all be mad because what I would tell you to do is as you read this passage, you need to write down 30 observations. I kid you not. That's what they do to you in seminary. They give you a paragraph, say, write down 30 things that you've noticed about this passage. We're not going to do that tonight, but we have a couple because I just said a couple, right? Duh. Now, one of the things that can speed up the process, because that's good. I mean, I was a fighter pilot. I like to fly fast. If you want to light the afterburners a little bit, go to tip one. And in your note sheet, tip one says, uh, read other translations. And there's two websites that are there for you. That's where you can get all the other translations for free. We live in this most amazing age where so much is readily available to us, right at our fingertips. All we have to do is go to it. So you can go read these other translations. My favorite translations, and by the way, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, what's the best translation? There's no answer to that. It's like saying, what's the best car? It depends if you want to go four-wheeling or if you want to carpool with four kids to, to, to school. It's a different answer, right? Uh, so there is no best translation. Now, the be sometimes when people say, what's the best translation, I'll, I'll flippantly say, whatever one you read the most. And that's probably the best answer. But whatever one you like, pick it and read it. But the ones that a lot of people like are the NIV, the one that I'm reading right now, the ESV, English Standard Version, which is a little bit more literal, and the NLT, or New Living Translation, which is a little bit more, uh, more conversational uh, than the NIV. But they're all good. And if we go to the next slide, Lee, you'll see because uh, we don't have time to do this, when you read through those different translations, there's a few differences. In verse 14, uh, the ESV is basically the same all the way through, but in v verse 14, it uses serpent instead of snake. Well, that's not a big deal, because like I said, it's a more literal translation, and serpent's probably closer to the Greek. Now, I want to pause here, by the way, because I just said Greek. How many people in here know Greek or Hebrew? Couple. Okay. And I don't know Greek or Hebrew. I want to tell you something. You could understand the Bible without knowing Greek or Hebrew. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, now, some of you should learn Greek and Hebrew. 
Jose is learning Hebrew, and I'm really happy for him. My, one of my professors in, in seminary said, Steve, you need to learn Hebrew. You've got to learn. It's so beautiful. You've got to learn the language. And I said, I promise I will as soon as I figure out English because I'm not really good at languages, so I'm not going to learn Greek or Hebrew. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on other people to help me with that. But in the Greek, the word is closer to serpent. Now, in the New Living Translation, verse 10 is changed from Israel's teacher to respected Jewish teacher. So that gives us a little bit of clue. And then the real big clue in the NLT is in verse 14. Instead of saying a snake, it says bronze snake on a pole. Whoa, okay, that's, that's really wild. So that leads us to tip two. Um, one of the things we need to do when we're reading and studying the Bible is read everything in context. And if you would say, what's the most important tip of everything on this note sheet? This is it. If you're into real estate, what's the three things that matter the most? Location, location, and location. And when you're reading and studying the Bible, the three things that matter the most are context, context, and context. So to understand this in context, first thing we've got to figure out is who's Jesus talking to? Because this passage starts out in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, but who's he talking to? To get the answer to that, we've got to back up to verse 1. And you normally have to do that, go back to the beginning of the chapter, sometimes the beginning of the book. So let's do that real quickly together. We'll go back to verse 1 and see what's going on in context of what's happening. Verse 1 says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we know right away that he's a big shot because he's a member of the ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus says, we know you're special. You're from God. Verse 3, Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is this famous born-again passage. Nicodemus, in verse 4, is understandably confused. How could someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter in a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And I would be probably asking the same thing. Jesus answers, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised that may saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And verse 9 is probably what all of us would say. Nicodemus says, how can this be? He's confused. And the passage we're looking at tonight, verse 10 to 15, is the answer to the question. But it's not me answering it. It's not some PhD guy answering it. It's Jesus answering it. And that's just off the charts cool. Jesus, in this passage, is answering this question, how could I be born again? Now, the other thing we want to do, instead, of, and not just look at the immediate context, but if you look at tip three in your note sheet, we want to research the historical setting the historical setting. And real quickly, when we look at the entire setting of the book of John, the Gospel of John, a key passage, don't turn there, but it's in John 20, and John says, I've written these things in order that you may believe. So that's the whole historical context and setting of this passage. And this passage that we just read in verse 15 says that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So there's this big thesis or theme of belief. Now you might be asking, Steve, what did you, where did you know or how did you find out to go to John chapter 20? 
Well, I use other books. And this one uh, is a, a favorite called The Essential Bible Companion. And the good news is you don't have to go out and buy one because we have 400 copies of them in the back. And when you leave tonight, every single one of you should take one with a one or two exceptions. If you already own one, you don't need to take one. Or if you're a couple and you do your quiet time in the same time and same place, you might want to share one. But if you're a couple and you do your quiet times in different places, take two. We want you to have this. And what this book does is it just has two pages on each book of the Bible. And so if you go to the Gospel of John in here, it'll direct you to John 20 and what the theme is. So on your way out, grab one of those. There is a donation bucket because they do cost us, you know, if you do 400 times how much the book costs, it gets kind of a big number. So if you want to throw five bucks in, fine. But if you have a choice, five bucks or pick up the book, pick up the book, okay? Because I don't want to haul them back to my house. That's a lot of weight and I'm getting older and it's starting, the back's starting to crack. So pick up your book on the way out and use it. Every time you start a new book of the Bible, read those two pages in that book. Now, about this time, you might be saying, okay, Steve, this is getting to be too much. This is taking some time. You're asking me to not only read the passage, but read it again, read it in different translations, go back, read it in context, go get this book. So look at tip four. Make some space in your life for reading the Bible. Make some space. I don't know how to sugarcoat this, but I'm not. Because the reality is, from Jim's message last week, from this message this week, we're hoping that you're convinced enough that I have to do this. I have to make space in my life. There's a cost to following Christ, right? This is an easy one. There's an actual monetary cost. By the end of the night, I'm going to spend about $40 or $50 for, of each one of your money. I'm actually going to do that because we've got some more books to recommend that we're not going to give to you. You're going to have to buy those on your own. So there's a literal cost, but there's also a time cost. Now, when I've, I've actually done surveys because this is a passionate area of mine. And you know what the number one reason people say of why they don't read the Bible? Too busy. And it doesn't matter if they're reading it one day a week or seven days a week. When, even the people, when they're, they're reading seven days a week, when they miss, they say, I'm too busy. You have to find a time. Now, the reality is, for most people, the best time is the morning. It is for me now that I don't have to work downtown anymore. I read in the morning. Most people that have an established regular reading habit do in the morning. But I know some of you have to work at 4.30, maybe tomorrow morning as baristas. How many people have to work at 4.30 as baristas? We've got a few of those, right? Yeah. Uh, how many people have to work at 6 in the morning? We've got some more of those. And I spent 20 years driving downtown, getting dressed, all that. You know, I actually took a shower, brushed my teeth, get down at my desk at 6 a.m. And I just failed. I finally said, I cannot do this morning reading thing. If that's you, you have to find another time to do it. And here's the tip. Here's the thing. If you are reading at some other point in the day, you are more likely to have interrupted thoughts. And when that happens, do you feel a little guilty? Like you're reading the book of God and you go, oh, I got to record the football game. You know, ooh. So you feel guilty about that. Or I got to do this for my wife. Oh, it's our anniversary next week. Ah, so what do you do? Well, I finally heard this pastor talk about it. He goes, don't feel guilty about it. Just write it down and then get back to studying your Bible. That's brilliant. So for years... I had this little to-do list in my Bible, and I just write it down. I mean, your Bible's with you all the time anyway. Now I use a smartphone. 
That's really cool because then it dings at you to actually do it. So you're less likely to forget it. So have your to-do list your next to you why you're reading the Bible. And that will work for you. Now, in the course of this, making space, you need to have a plan, which leads us to tip number five. Tip number five. <coughs> it's an extremely cheesy saying, but I'm going to say it because it's so true. Those uh, people don't plan to fail, but they fail to plan, right? You've all heard that. It's super cheesy. I can't believe I just said it, but it's true. The people that I have talked to that actually read their Bible regularly, they have a plan, some kind of a plan. The people that are kind of haphazardly reading their Bible, they just don't have a plan. So I gave you a couple. There's no right or wrong plan. Um, you know, the reading plans that come in the back of your Bible, those aren't inspired by God. Some, somebody made those up. So here's a couple easy ones. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, just read through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then do it again, do it again. And when you finally start feeling familiar with that, maybe you go to this next plan, two chapters of the Old Testament, two chapters of the New Testament. If you do that, you'll read the whole Old Testament in about 15 months, and you'll read the New Testament in about four months. So you'll be reading the New Testament more than the Old Testament, but I think that's okay. Uh, and then the last plan is two of the old, two of the new, and then one chapter a day of Psalms and Proverbs. So you start Psalm 1, and you can read all the way to Psalm 50, and then you go Proverbs 1 to Proverbs 31, and then you start back at Psalm 1. That's my favorite plan. That's what I normally do. But here's the cool thing. You could change it up. If, if you're work, doing a plan, it doesn't work for you, throw it out. Start another one. There's so many plans out there on that Bible Gateway website and the YouVersion websites. There's plan after plan after plan. The test is what I already asked you. Look back at the last seven days, and are you reading the Bible every day? If you are, your plan's working for you. If you're not, change your plan. Now, I, wanted to know, I want you to know something. This is kind of a personal pet peeve of mine. I think we as a church have done a little bit of a disservice by most of the plans that are out there are followed by with this phrase, in a year. Now, how many people have tried to read the Bible in a year and crashed and burned? I'll be honest. Okay. Me too. Like five, six times. But here's what will happen. After you start reading the Bible and studying the Bible, you'll understand it better. You'll actually be able to read it faster. Now I could actually read it in a year because I'm not constantly stopping to go look up words. But if you're new to the Bible, you don't understand the Bible, you don't have to read it in a year. If you don't understand, stop, go figure out. The key is daily consistent reading. I would recommend at least 15 minutes a day. And if you could do 30, that's awesome. Let's keep moving. All right, step two. I know that was a long step. Uh, they get shorter from here. Step two is the meaning. We've looked at the content. We've observed it. And in the meaning, here's the key point of the meaning. We want to understand what the author meant to the original audience. One of the things you hear in Bible studies is, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? And if what they mean by that is, how do you apply this in your life? I'm okay with that. But a Bible passage generally only has one meaning, and that meaning is what the author meant, his meaning, to the original audience. So that's, we're on, that's what we're on the hunt for. That's what we're on the search for. Tip six, look for key introductory phrases and connecting words. Look for key introductory phrases and connecting words. That's actually easy in this passage. It's verse nine. Nicodemus says, how can this be? That's the introductory phrase to the whole next paragraph. And as I already said, the next paragraph is the answer to that question. 
Then as we step down, we look at these different verses, and I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. Again, you would normally take a little bit more time than this, but I'm trying to give you an overview so you have a sense of how to do this. Uh, Verse 10, what does Jesus almost always do when a Pharisee asks him a question? He asks a question back, and he does that here again. It's a rhetorical question. Um, And then verse 11, he starts answering. He says, we have basically says, we've told you the answer. Nicodemus, you've got the answer. We've told you already, but you're not accepting it. And then verse 12, Jesus makes a distinction between earthly things and heavenly things. And then verse 13, he makes a statement that only the Son of Man is from heaven. The cool thing there is it confirms to Nicodemus that his statement earlier that Jesus is from God is correct. And then verse 14, we already said, what are we going to do about this snake in the wilderness thing? Verse 15, Jesus makes this huge connection between eternal life and being and, and believing, which gets us to tip seven. Tip seven in your notes says consider using an ESV study Bible because there's some stuff in there I don't really know how to answer on my own. I'm going to recommend to you guys to go buy one of these. It's big, I know, it's daunting, but it's not a book to meant to be read cover to cover. It's a reference book that you go to. Uh, we have some of them on sale for the, at the book table. Um, it could easily run out if you all run out there. I think they're 28 bucks at the book table. You can buy them online for 32. It's the latest study Bible, I believe, that's been published. I might be wrong about that. But it's a really, really good, solid study Bible. And you really, really need to have that. And if you look into that, what you'll find out about this whole snake in the wilderness thing is it's a reference to Numbers chapter 21, which leads us to tip number eight. Tip number eight says, interpret scripture with scriptures. Now, one of the best things about the Bible is the Bible explains itself all the time, and it constantly references itself all the time. And many of you have a Bible with cross-references in it, so use that. So since the ESV study Bible says this is a reference to Numbers 21, let's go there real quick. Hold your spot in John 3. We're going to do this real quick. It's just such a cool story. We've got to read it. And flip over to the uh, you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So it's the fourth book in the Bible, chapter 21. And we're going to start in verse 4. Numbers 21, verse 4. And if you think the Bible's boring, this might change your mind because this is a really wild story. I love this story. Everybody there? Okay, here we go. Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Edom is kind of bad, guys. That's why they're going around them. But the people grew impatient on the way. That never happens to us, does it? So they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. That's different. They bit the people, and many, many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. No kidding. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now notice that um, God does not answer this specific prayer of take the snakes away. What does God do instead? In verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake 
and they lived. Crazy story. Now turn back to John chapter 3. With that is the, is the backdrop. Now we go to verse thir- uh, I'm sorry, 14. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, just like in Numbers 21, Nicodemus, the Israelites had to look at the bronze snake on a pole to live, just like that, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're a respected Jewish teacher. You know the Old Testament. You know this story. Just like that, live or die, your choice, Israelites. Look and live, don't look and die. Jesus is saying, look at me and live. Don't look at me and die. That's a pretty, very profound statement that, that Jesus would say. Now, before we jump on and go a little bit into the the next couple steps, I want to throw a couple random tips in here. Tip number nine is get the meaning out of the text. Don't read meaning into the text. And what I mean by that is we could so often be reading our Bible and you've got some problem of the day and the verse kind of refers something like that problem and you jump from content from step one to your response in step four, and you could take it right out of context, and you got to be careful of doing that. An example of that would be like Vicky and I once, we were uh, with some friends in Arizona. They had a boat. We went water skiing. We went onto the shore, and we were setting up for a picnic lunch, and as she's walking, she steps on a scorpion, and it like whatever scorpions have. They have stingers, whatever they have. They're bad. And it sticks, and we look at her foot, and it's still in there, and her foot's starting to swell up. Now, I'm a Christian. I know the Bible. What do I do? Go into the woods and get a snake and put it on a pole and say, Vicki, look at the pole and live. How crazy would that be? That's taking the passage out of context. Instead, we went to a hospital, uh, and that worked out really well because it turned out to be the non-poisonous kinds of scorpions. So there's good scorpions and bad scorpions. I did not know that. Tip number 10, know the genre of the passage. Now, genre is just a type of literature. Uh, I want to hit this really quick just to expose you to it. We don't have time to go, but flip your note sheet over now. There's some examples of genre. There's more than this, but these big three examples, uh, narrative, poetry, discourse, you could split the whole Bible up into this. Ray Lubeck in his book says narrative is almost half of the Bible. It has a setting, a plot, and characters. That, that story we just read out of Numbers 21 is narrative. It's a story. And it describes what did happen, not what should have necessarily happened. Poetry uh, has parallelism and imagery. Now, like I said, I'm not much of an English poet guy, but you guys are better at this than you know. Everybody, this is the audience participation portion. Everybody complete this sentence for me. Jack and Jill... Okay, why do you know that? Because English poetry has rhyme and meter. Jack didn't go up the mountain. He went up the hill because it rhymes with Jill. So there's rhyme there. And there's a meter. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Hebrew poetry, the poetry in the Bible, doesn't have rhyme and meter. Instead, it has parallelism and imagery. So I gave you a quick example. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So first, notice the parallelism. The heavens declare is parallel to the skies proclaim. 
and the glory of God is parallel to the work of his hands. This will help you so much when you read poetry, especially if you're not really into poetry like a lot of people. Now, notice that when you read parallel passages, sometimes the passage builds on the previous line. Uh, sometimes it's the same. Sometimes it's the opposite. But there are parallels there. And then there's imagery in poetry. Imagery. Uh, the skies proclaim. The skies don't literally speak. That's imagery. The work of his hands. God doesn't have literal physical hands and makes the trees and stuff. Uh, that's, that's imagery. And here's the thing. I've changed from thinking that poetry is for girly men to poetry in the Bible is the video that we have today of age. So if you want a really interesting experiment, go read the story of the Red Sea in, in Exodus 14, the narrative, and then go read it in Exodus 15, which is poetry, and it just absolutely comes alive. And it's like watching a movie. It literally says things like, God blows his nostrils onto the sea to separate the sea. It's really cool. So the third kind of genre is discourse. That's a teaching. Most of the epistles are discourse, and that's what we're reading tonight. The key to interpreting discourse, it has a main point. So we're looking for the main point. Now, before we go on to um, the last step, the step, th uh, step three, the truths, you want to stop and say, have I done this right? Summarize it. Sometimes you might have to go content meaning, content meaning, content meaning, and then go to the truths. You might have to do a little bit of reviving. But tonight, in the sake of time, we're going to press on. We're going to go right to step three and look for the truths out of the passage. And the truths are the timeless truths, truths that will always be true, and the principles that are universal. So you need to have an understanding of the whole Bible to do that. So I just picked out three that came to mind as I read it. They're pretty simple. One of them is when we pursue Jesus, he responds to us. He reveals himself to us because that's all over the Bible. In James, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In Matthew, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Later in the gospel of John, my, one of my favorite verses, John 14 says, the one who loves me is loved, and I will show myself to him. How cool is that? Here in the story, Nicodemus pursues Jesus. He goes to Jesus. It's kind of wimpy because he goes at night. But he goes to Jesus, and he says, you're from God. I want to know more is basically what he says. And then Jesus gives him a lot more. Another truth that I found in this, which is important, I think, for tonight's study, is Jesus absolutely validates the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life I said, this book is just too thick, and the Old Testament is particularly difficult, and the New Testament's thinner. I like that. And the New Testament is about Jesus, and I'm all about Jesus, so I'm just going to read the New Testament, and I'm going to leave the Old Testament for everybody else. And that is so wrong. Here's the truth. You cannot fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You just cannot do it. And if you really want to know about Jesus you're going to read the Old Testament. Because guess who's always talking about the Old Testament? Jesus, just like he did in this passage. So Jesus validates the Old, the Old Testament big time. But probably the biggest point, the biggest truth out of step three, I think uh, that's here is the last verse. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
in the South, they would call that the big dog on the porch. I mean, that's the main thing. The whole passage is about belief and eternal life. Uh, we, we looked at the historical evidence and setting. It, the whole book is about belief. Now, when you come across a word that's that big, sometimes you want to do a little bit of extra study, a word study. Because words have what the, what the scholars call a semantic range, like the word trunk. If I say trunk, you don't know if I'm talking about an elephant trunk or a car trunk or a suitcase trunk. A suitcase trunk. And you, you have to read that in context. And some words have a semantic range to take a, a, a meaning deeper and deeper and deeper. And believe is like that. Believe has a large semantic range. See, I could believe in gravity, but when I'm falling to my death, I have a whole deeper belief in gravity. It's a lot like my friend Eric, uh, who's an expert skier, a friend of mine from the investment business. About three or four weeks ago, he was on the summit of Mount Hood. I'm sorry, summit of Mount Bachelor outside of Bend. One of the best places to ski in Oregon. It's called the Summit. It's the Upper Bowls. And he skis double diamonds with ease. He's a great skier. And when you get off that lift, you actually take your ski ball, skis off and hike up a little bit higher to get to the very top of the bowl. It's great fun. If you haven't done it, you should try it. But try something easier first. If you're not a skier, after you hear this story, you will. So Eric, expert skier, he does that a couple times in the morning. And then he goes back in the afternoon to do that. And he's a little bit of lackadaisical after he does this climb about getting the skis off his boots. And when he clips into his skis, they're not all the way in, but he doesn't know it. He starts skiing down the steepest part of this mountain. The ski patrol call it the slide for life. And he had one. One of his skis popped off. He tried to stop. The other ski popped off. And he began to accelerate as he slid down this thing. The ski patrol said he was probably going about 50 miles an hour with no skis on. Eric, fortunately, a believer, prays. What do you think he prays? Long prayer, real short. God help me, right? God save me. He had the presence of mind to actually pray. And as he's accelerating out on the slope, he realizes he has a life or death situation. He skied this before. He knows what's at the bottom. It's a pile of rocks. He knows he literally has a life or death situation. So in the moment, he takes his leg and throws it into the slopes and uses his leg as a brake. It took 14 pins to put his leg back together. The surgeons used the word shatter to describe what he did to his leg. But he lived. And when he was stopped, he was very ecstatic that he lived. He knew if he did not do that, he would die. Now, see, Eric has a whole different belief in gravity now. He completely understands the ramifications of gravity. And that's the depth of belief that Jesus is talking about. This is a life or death belief. Believe into internal life or believe, not believe into eternal death. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, before we get to the last step, the response, one last tip, check the commentaries. Check the commentaries. Um, this is one of those, I want to make sure I got it right. One of my favorite quotes from the investment business is from Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett's quoted as saying, I would rather be about right than exactly wrong. And that's just good advice to live by when you're investing or when you're reading the Bible. 
So we recommend checking commentaries, but notice I didn't have you check commentaries first. That's a huge mistake that you can get into. When you're reading the Bible, don't go to the commentaries first. No, read it first, study it on your own. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you, and the process of learning will do you immense good. But at the end, if you have a passage like this, I'm not sure if I did it right, check the commentaries. This is a commentary we would recommend, also available at the book table. I'm recommending it for a couple reasons. One, it's cheap. It's only 10 bucks. Two, it's awesome. It's uh, the NIV Compact Bible com Commentary by John Salhammer. And unlike a lot of commentaries that are super detailed, this one's more of a, a, a quick read of a, every passage. So after you read a passage, you go, ah, I wonder if I got that right. Check the commentary, see if you have it right. Now, what I'm telling you is you want to build a library. Uh, but if you have these three books and your Bible, you're off to a very, very good start. So... Let's go to the last step, step four, and that's the response. And this is the time where we actually pause and stop and literally close our Bibles. So let's do that. We're done reading the Bible. We've done studying the Bible. We want to slow down. And this is a hard part for me. I got to tell you, I cannot tell you how many times I've read the Bible and skipped this because you got to go off to work, right? You got things to do. You're busy. You're important. But Jesus and the Word of God is super important. So don't skip this step. So you stop, you respond. Tip 12 is pray and listen. Pray and listen. I've got a lot to learn on that. But as we look at this passage and reflect on this passage, there's a couple different responses that come to my mind. And I think most of you would fit into one of these two groups. Uh, Perhaps you already believe and you already have eternal life and you're already saved and that's awesome and we worship Jesus and that's what we gather together to celebrate that. But as you go to the communion tables tonight and as we pray in our small groups, one of those responses you might have is, wow, after Jim's message last week and Steve's message this week, I need to get into the Bible more. You know, I got to tell you, I've been blessed uh, in my life, I've gotten to do some really exciting things. This is the exciting part of my life now. I mean, I didn't used to get excited about reading the Bible. I'm being completely transparent with you. It was a chore at first. It took time. But the more you read it, it's like a snowball. The more you read it, the more you read it, the more you like it, the more you understand it. And God starts speaking to you more. And now when I get up, I'm not just excited about coffee. I'm excited about coffee and the Word. I'm reading Ezekiel right now. Oh my goodness, that's a cool book. I don't fully understand it, but man, it's exciting. I'm excited about that. So one of your responses might be, I need to be in the Word more. There's been people praying for all of us this week. The specific prayer was out of tonight that 100 of you will actually read the Bible consistently having not read the Bible consistently. That's a big prayer. I hope you're one of those hundred. The second response may be perhaps you're like Nicodemus. Maybe you're like Dick Nicodemus. You're here in church. You probably believe in God, but you're not fully down with this whole born again thing. And like Nicodemus, you're a little confused. But maybe your response tonight is, I get it. I listened to Jesus' answer. He says... Only the Son of Man comes from heaven and goes back to heaven because he's God. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He's the only one that can save. And fortunately, all we need to do is to believe. Believe with the depth, 
that Eric believed as it was falling to his death. Literally, if you look in the, in the, in the study Bibles, the word is believe into. It's not just believe in Jesus, it's believe into Jesus. They don't translate that way because it'd probably be bad English. But it literally means believe into Jesus, fully united, and you become one with Jesus. As we end tonight, I want to read just the next verse that we didn't cover because it's so famous. John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, whoever, universal, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So tonight, as we pray and respond and worship and go to the tables, we need to realize that God's done it all. He's completely done his part. And our challenge after reading this passage is to respond positively in one of these two ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this beautiful thing we call the Word of God. Lord, I ask you forgiveness for my early years saying the Bible's too thick. Now, Lord, I wish it was thicker. I wish you had revealed more of yourself. Lord, I pray that as we respond today in communion, that we really do business. We make a commitment to read the Bible more, or we make a commitment tonight to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they think about this message and think about this passage, that they realize that the actual creator of the universe, the one and only true God, the Son of God, the one who came down from heaven, died, buried, and was resurrected in all glory and is now sitting at your right hand. Lord, we thank you for this truth and we want to respond to it tonight. In Jesus' name.